Well, as Jeremy indicated, the, um, the theme verse for our gathering here today is Proverbs 11.10, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. That's a, a verse near and dear to my own heart, since most of my book was, was written out of a desire to think well about that verse. I first became um, kind of aware of the verse or enamored of it by listening to some remarks that Tim Keller made in a sermon many years ago. Um, and he, uh, he said something, he began by saying, you know, when you really pay attention to this verse, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. He said, so land on is kind of counterintuitively. Because in any city, you're going to have a lot of different uh, groups. Um, and this verse is telling us that there's a particular group in the city, and they're prospering. Everything's going great for them. The prosper word there in the Hebrew connotes the idea of of, of status, of wealth, of power. Um, these are people that have all sorts of opportunities. They have you know, strong networks. Uh, everything's going great for them. And as they continue to thrive, everyone else in the city is happy about it. And he says, you know, that's kind of counterintuitive. Could you imagine a uh, reasonable to imagine a scenario in which uh, people at the bottom, quote unquote, of society would be looking at that situation saying, oh, well, the rich are just getting richer. And, um, and people would be feeling disgruntled or jealous. But no, it, Keller says everyone, you know, here, here this one group is, is thriving, and yet everyone is rejoicing over it. Well, the answer to that, to that riddle lies in the, in the answer to the question, well, who is it um, that is prospering? Next slide. And it's the righteous who are prospering. Now, when we go from Hebrew to English, we sometimes lose... Um, just some, some things. Um, the Hebrew term there for the righteous is the sadakim. That's your 50 cent word that you can go home and impress your, you know, your friends and family with, the sadakim. And it's translated in our English Bibles as the righteous or the just. And those are you know, good translations. But, but the sadakim, that, that concept in the Hebrew lexicon, kind of is really quite robust. Um, Keller explained that the Sadakim are those who are so in love with God and so enamored of his purposes in the world um, that they see everything that they've been given, all of the dimensions of their prosperity, that wealth, that power, that influence, etc. They see all of that as a gift from God meant to be poured out to bless others. They understand that they are blessed to be a blessing. They don't see all of this prosperity that God has given them as a means merely of self-aggrandizement or of self-enrichment. Rather, they see it as a, a way to, to bring about the common good. And in fact, Keller went on to say that in the book of Proverbs, um, the righteous, the sadakim, are really understood as those even willing to disadvantage themselves for the sake of the common good, whereas the wicked in the book of Proverbs, are always those who are constantly putting their own, um, you know, interests ahead of the communities. Well, I, I was really quite taken by that whole uh, idea, and I found myself praying, Lord, make me a Sadiq, because I'm definitely one of the prospering. Now, I'm not Bill Gates, and I don't own my own company. I actually work for a nonprofit, right? But compared to probably two, maybe even three billion people in the world, I am the prospering. <laughs> Com compared to millions of people in this country, I am the prospering. 
And I would venture to say that probably most of you are as well. But tragically, it is entirely possible to be the prospering, but not be the sadakim. But the Lord wants us to, to be the sadakim. So I, I began to dig deeper into the text, and um, it turns out that the word rejoice, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices, that that's also a really important word. I think, next slide. Um, the, the word there for rejoicing is not, it's only used twice in the Old Testament, this particular phrase. And it's not connoting kind of happy birthday party rejoicing, you know, or we're having chocolate ice cream for dessert, although that's definitely worth some serious rejoicing. Um, this, is, um, this is the kind of rejoicing that a people do when they have been oppressed. When they, when they have been sort of under the thumb of oppressors, and now God has entered in, God has intervened, God has liberated them. And it's a kind of soul-soaring exaltation. Um, I, I picture the dancing on the streets of Paris on VE Day, the end of World War II, as this sort of rejoicing. Well, once we understand that that's the kind of rejoicing we're talking about, a very particular kind of rejoicing, this dancing in the streets rejoicing, then we realize that the righteous, the sadakim, must be stewarding all of their blessings and all of their prosperity in a way that's really transforming the city. There, there must be truly fundamental and structural and remarkable transformation that's occurring in the city because only that kind of really big impact, big change would elicit this particular kind of dancing in the streets rejoicing, right? This is not the Sadakim, you know, taking their $200 dress down to the Salvation Army thrift store and a poor person finding it for $10 and saying, oh, I'm so happy, happy, happy. This is the Sadakim so stewarding every dimension of their prosperity in a way that is bringing about change, really deep change for everyone in the community, particularly those at the bottom. This is the Sadakim bringing into reality in their community what I like to call foretastes of the kingdom of God. You see, um, Jesus was on a mission um, when he was on earth. And one of the many ways that we can sort of understand his mission is to say that Jesus um, was a kingdom foretaste bringer. That, that, that Jesus was sort of saying, let's consider what life in the new heavens and the new earth is going to be like. And I'm going I'm to reach into that future reality. And I'm going to yank a foretaste of it back into the present. Jesus was a, a foretaste bringer. He's on this cosmic mission to renew all things. Yes, to renew us individually. Certainly that's the heart of the gospel. But to renew all things. To make all things new. And he calls us to join him in that work. He, he calls us to be with him and to join him in this kingdom mission of making all things new, of bringing about these foretastes of the kingdom of God. And that work is what I call vocational stewardship. 
and I've got the definition up here, that vocational stewardship is the, is the strategic, and employment, strategic and intentional deployment of all the dimensions of our vocational power to advance these fortes of the kingdom of God. You see, we talk about, we talk about Proverbs 11.10 because when we think about the prosperity of the righteous, a huge dimension of that prosperity is our vocational power. Now, some of us have more limited vocational power. Some of us have great vocational power. But all of us have some, and frankly, all of us in this room have a lot more than literally billions of people around the world who are just doing the same job that their grandfather did, his grandfather did, his grandfather did before him. We have a lot of vocational power. And we are meant to strategically, creatively, intentionally deploy that in a way that brings about these fortes of the kingdom. Next slide. So what do I mean by these kingdom fortes? Well, what I mean is um, all of the beautiful marks of the New Jerusalem, all of the beautiful marks of how life is one day going to be in the new heaven and the new earth. It'll be marked by perfect beauty, by perfect face-to-face -face intimacy with God, by perfect justice and peace and wholeness and reconciliation, unity in the midst of diversity, economic flourishing, joy and hope and comfort and rest, opportunity, you name it. All of these things. And we get to be kingdom foretaste bringers through our daily work. In fact, it's through our daily work that we probably have the most opportunity to be these foretaste bringers. So I want to talk today about kind of three, um, three steps or three avenues uh, of, of how to actually live this idea of vocational stewardship out. And there's more than three, um, but uh, what I want to talk about, next slide, uh, are, are some basic steps. First step is that in order to steward our vocational influence and power well, we need to take inventory. The second step is that we need to wrestle with the question, how can I love my neighbor through my work? And the third is to ask the question, how can I be an agent of renewal, renewing the culture, uh, particularly my, my industrial sort of sector that I'm in? H how can I do that through my work? So let's go into all of those. The first one is, uh, is taking inventory. Um, we cannot steward well that which we do not recognize we possess. Let me say that again. We cannot steward well that which we do not recognize that we possess. And I have found that it is pretty common for most people to have a too small understanding of the vocational power they actually possess. Again, when you think about the CEO of the company or you, you know, think about the really wealthy person, um, you think, well, yeah, they've, they've got the vocational power. True. But, but all of us actually have some. Next slide. One of the ways we can take inventory is to sort of look at the various dimensions of what I'm calling our vocational power. All of us have developed certain skills. Many of you have been, had the opportunity, as I have had, for a good education where we've developed a certain knowledge and expertise. Some of us have been at our jobs for a while and we've honed those skills and we, we, we know more about 
uh, that field of work, whether that's engineering or architecture or law or whatever, then, then someone else does who's not in that work. Some of you have a platform. Uh, maybe you work for some sort of a media outlet and you actually have sort of a platform just to speak from. Um, all of us have networks, professional networks, social networks. We all have some degree of influence. Again, it, it's kind of elastic, it, it depends uh, on where you are and what your context is. Some have more influence than others, but everyone has some influence. Even if you feel like, well, I'm just the intern at the office, I'm in a cubicle, and everyone's telling me to go get coffee, like you actually do have some degree of influence. Um, you, some, of, uh, some of you have high positions where you actually have seniority and authority over others in the organization for which you work. So we need to think through um, what it is that God has placed in our hands because we cannot steward well that which we do not even recognize that we possess. So we need to take inventory. Secondly, we need to ask the question, how can I love my neighbor through my work? What does that look like? And I want to just tell you a, a number of quick stories to try to um, seed your imagination a little bit about what that looks like. On the screen is a picture of a lady that I met in Pittsburgh some years ago. She's a chef, and uh, she goes to a church that deliberately located itself uh, in kind of an economically transitional neighborhood on the north side of, of Pittsburgh. And after she, uh, Nikki became a Christian, um, she really had this idea of how can I, how can I sort of serve my literal neighbors, the literal people living in that geography of north, the north side neighborhood in, in Pittsburgh, how can I bless them with my particular vocational talents? Well, what she decided to do, quite, quite a risky venture, really, she decided to launch uh, a cafe. It's called Bistro To Go. And it's on a, it's on a street that, at the time she you know, started the restaurant, wasn't a lot of parking, and there was a good bit of drug dealing, you know, a lot of people would have said, well, this looks like kind of a foolish investment, but she really felt like God was calling her to establish this work. She could hire people from the neighborhood to be part of her business, and hopefully her business would begin to sort of bring about the beginnings of an, uh, of an economic revival in that particular community. Well, today, Chef Nikki actually owns three different businesses all next door to each other on the same street there in, in North north uh, side of, of Pittsburgh, and she's been able to hire 42 people from the community and provide those jobs. She does a great job of loving her literal neighbors. She offers free cooking classes for moms from the community, teaching them how to cook healthy on a low budget. And there's many other things that she's doing through her work that I don't have time to tell you about. But I believe that Nikki is being used by the Holy Spirit to offer a foretaste of flourishing, of economic flourishing, to her literal geographic neighbors. Next slide. Um, this is a picture of one of my heroes. His name is Brian Stevenson. He's an attorney. Uh, he graduated from Harvard Law School, and you know the world was open to him. You graduate from Harvard Law School, and you can pretty much work wherever you, you know, want, want to work. But for Brian, um, he chose to deliberately say, you know, I see that Jesus was often serving the disadvantaged and the marginalized and the outcasts. 
and that Jesus was passionate about justice. And as an attorney, that's really the kingdom foretaste I am best skilled to try to bring to people a greater sense of, of justice. And so this Harvard lawyer moved to Montgomery, Alabama, in the deep south, to try to pursue justice, particularly for uh, African Americans who have been unjustly imprisoned, uh, who have a lot of evidence to suggest that they're actually innocent of the crime for which they are uh, incarcerated, and to help those individuals um, be set free. So Brian Stevenson is, is loving his neighbors, defined as those who are oppressed, those who really need um, the work of Christ, that liberating the captive's work. Next slide. This is a picture of a guy named Doug Wilson. Um, Doug is now retired, um, but for many years, he was the vice president of human resources at a company uh, that has a, a, a manufacturing plant with about 1,000 employees in a rural area of Indiana. And um, as is the case with many companies, um, this particular company called Hillenbrand was seeing its uh, health insurance costs just skyrocket every year, year after year after year. Huge amount of money going in to the health insurance. At the same time, they actually did a little survey of their employees, and they discovered that their employees were not nearly as healthy as would have been you know, ideal for them to be. There was many employees who uh, were not involved in any kind of preventative or wellness care. Many employees who didn't really go to the doctor that often, even when they really needed to, because they're hourly workers and to take off work, drive an hour to the doctor, sit in the doctor's office forever, drive all the way back. It was a lot of time that they were missing uh, from there. So unless they were really, really sick, they weren't going to the doctor. And even though they had pretty decent health insurance from the company, uh, sometimes the copays for their prescription medicines were difficult for them to, to manage. And so for all these reasons, the, the employees were not as healthy. So here you have a company with huge health care costs, and yet the, the employees aren't that, aren't that healthy. Well, Doug, to make a very long and complicated uh, story much shorter, Doug partnered with a nonprofit organization uh, that helps businesses um, set up on-site health and wellness clinics right there on the compound of the manufacturing facility. And over time, he developed this proposal and he took it to the, the board of directors and his bosses and you know, the people higher up and basically made the case that you know, the investment to establish one of these on-site health and wellness clinics with its own pharmacy, with its own x-ray technician, with its own uh, general practice doctors, that yes, this was gonna cost a significant amount of money, but that their financial projections were uh, suggesting that after three years, the company would break even on that investment, and then in the future years, they would actually make money because the employees would be healthier, they'd be more productive, and the overall health insurance costs would go down. All of that happened, except that it all happened in year one, not in year four. They actually came out $300,000 ahead in the very first year. So Doug Wilson loved his neighbor, i.e. his coworkers, and he was used by God to bring a foretaste of health and wholeness to those coworkers. Next slide. Uh, this is another one of my heroes, Alpha Demolesh. Uh, Alpha um, came to the United States as an immigrant from Ethiopia when she was 13 years old. 
She's one of those amazing immigrant success stories. They, they get over here, they master English in like three weeks, and they get a full ride to Harvard. Uh, these, these immigrants are so amazing. Um, well, she uh, got trained, uh, met her husband uh, at Harvard. The two of them have uh, business uh, savvy and business expertise. And uh, they've started an organization called Rising Tide Capital. And through Rising Tide Capital, they are loving fellow immigrants. Immigrants who have entrepreneurial passion, entrepreneurial dreams, entrepreneurial drive, but not necessarily formal business training or access to capital investment. So Rising Tide Capital is an organization that provides a community business academy to these immigrant entrepreneurs. And then after developing uh, business plans and getting them hooked up with mentors from the business community, helps them to find uh, capital to start their businesses. And they've been able to help many, many immigrants start new businesses or take a mom and pop business and expand it to, in order to uh, hire more people. So this is Alpha Damalesh, uh, loving uh, her neighbor, defined as uh, fellow immigrant entrepreneurs. Uh, and bringing them a foretaste of opportunity. And then finally, uh, Pete Leonard. Um, Pete Leonard is a guy who uh, is a business guy, and he started a coffee uh, roasting, a coffee bean roasting company called I Have a Bean. And uh, he, he did this, this business venture specifically out of his desire to provide jobs to people coming out of prison and wanting to make a fresh start. He knew that ex-felons have very difficult times kind of going straight. Uh, and one of the reasons is because it's very difficult for them to find a job. And so he wanted to start a company that would offer uh, employment opportunities to people coming out of prison. Uh, and his, uh, his company has done very well. And he's really offered a foretaste of redemption to neighbors defined as those in prison <laughs> and those coming out of prison. So these are some stories, I wish I could give you more detail about each one, but hopefully they're beginning to, to you know, plant little seeds in your imagination to think about, well, what would it look like for you? What are the foretastes that you can bring given your particular skills and talents and platform, et cetera, et cetera? So we need to take inventory, because we cannot steward well that which we do not recognize we possess. We need to wrestle with the question of how can we love our neighbors through our work, whether the neighbors are defined literally as our geographic neighbors or whether they're defined as people on the margins or whether they're defined as um, our coworkers. How do we love our neighbors? And then the third uh, idea, asking the question and wrestling with the question, how can we be agents of renewal uh, in our various uh, vocational sectors? Next slide. This is a picture of Jessica Ray. Jessica, I believe, is being used by God to bring renewal in the fashion industry. Jessica has started her own uh, women's swimwear company because she had grown to feel frustrated in her own search for a swimsuit that she actually, as a woman, could feel comfortable wearing. <laughs> because so many of the swimsuits are so uh, immodest and can make people sort of feel like they're just an object. And she wanted to change that. She wanted to prove that it was possible to, to design swimsuits in which both the beauty of beauty 
and the beauty of modesty could be married. And she, so she has her own line now of, uh, of swimsuits uh, to do that. Now, is she renewing the entire fashion industry in the world? Well, of course not. But in her particular place, through the power of the Spirit, she's being creative and intentional to deploy the vocational power that she does have to be an agent of renewal in that particular industry. Next slide. This is a picture of a guy named Tim Schultz. He's actually from out here in California. He uh, went to a trade school in Fresno and became a carpenter. And he started working for a local uh, construction company. And you know, he's not the owner of the company, he's not the CEO of the company, he's not you know, somebody really high up in the company. Um, but after he had worked there for a few years, he uh, was feeling very uncomfortable about something. And what he was feeling uncomfortable about, this is a little you know, kind of oversimplified, but basically his company would get hired to knock old buildings down and put new ones up. And after they knocked the old ones down, all the stuff just went on dump trucks to the local landfill. And he thought, you know, that's just not that great for the environment. And as a Christian, I care about the creation. So he went to his boss and he said, you know, would you allow my friends and I to kind of work our way through the construction waste and salvage whatever materials we can that we think could be repurposed and reused? And the boss said, sure, why not, right? The less, the less gets put on a dump truck and sent to the, to the landfill, the less landfill fees the boss has to, put, has to pay. So Tim and his friends salvage construction waste and turn it into affordable office furniture for local nonprofit organizations. Again, he's not renewing the entire construction industry, but he's doing his little part to be an agent of renewal in that particular sector. Next slide. The world of finance. This is a guy named Robin John. Uh, he's a, an Asian-American, and he is the founder, uh, co-founder of something called Eventide Funds. I met um, the Eventide guys some years ago when I was speaking at a conference uh, called the Kingdom Advisors Conference. And um, there were people like Robin and others who were there um, teaching on what they were calling biblically responsible investing. Some of you probably have heard of the phrase socially responsible investing. It's this idea that you want to invest in companies that are, um, you know, they're transparent in their governance and they're not doing, you know, they're harming people. They're, they're good companies doing, doing good things. Well, some years ago, there were sort of some Christians that were like, how can we sort of do a, an explicitly faith-based type of, of fund? Um, but the ones that came out initially really were funds that basically said the reason that we are a Christian fund is because we're not investing in companies that are doing bad things. We're not investing in companies that are involved in pornography. We're not investing in companies that are um, involved in gambling. So they had sort of a list of the bad things that they were avoiding. What I loved about meeting the Eventide fellows was that their vision was bigger than that. Yes, they want to avoid the bad, but they also want to proactively invest in the good. And so Eventide Funds really um, sees it as its mission to identify uh, companies that are just doing social good. They're doing common good. They're offering 
goods and services that are needed. They're having innovations uh, in, in terms of healthcare and, and the environment. Um, there are companies that are providing opportunities uh, for the disabled, all sorts of different uh, good that these companies are doing. And I can tell you honestly that my little Eventide port portfolio, I wasn't able to like, you know, make a million dollar ones. Started with my little, you know, $3,000 investment. But my little Eventide fund has been doing very well. I'm doing well as Eventide does good. Next slide, architecture. Uh, this is another uh, gal that I met in the course of working on, on the book, uh, Jill Kurtz. Um, Jill was the first architecture student at Kansas State University in the School of Architecture to become what's known as LEED certified, L-E-E-D. And I don't know a whole lot about that, but what I do know is that LEED certified architects are interested in green building. They're interested in trying to figure out how can we build buildings that are good for the environment because they use recycled materials uh, and they um, are very energy efficient. In addition, um, Jill has a real passion about um, kind of pushing back against what we sometimes call um, sick building syndrome. This is when um, people are using toxic materials to, to build buildings and then office workers work in those buildings and they develop headaches and respiratory problems. This is known as sick building syndrome. And uh, she wanted to be the kind of architect who would become very knowledgeable about how to build uh, buildings that, that were healthy for people and that were healthy for the environment. After she graduated from architecture school, she went out, to, out here to San Francisco, worked for a large green architectural firm. That was a great uh, first real job for her. Um, not that her other jobs weren't real, Jeremy, but her first job within her field. And uh, it was great, and she was able to hone her skills. Um, but after a few years, she was sort of feeling discouraged because what she was realizing was, you know what? The field of architecture is really only accessible to a small segment of the world's population because it's pretty darn expensive. Kind of average Joe people don't usually hire architects because it's, it's kind of expensive. And so she thought, you know, why don't I start uh, a green building firm that would offer affordable design services to nonprofits, to churches, to groups involved in international relief and development. And that's what she's done. But not only that, she got back in touch with her alma mater and she said, you know, I'm beginning to see myself as a public interest architect. You, you've probably heard of public interest lawyer, but she sees herself as a public interest architect. And um, she was able to get a course approved where she goes back to her alma mater every January and teaches a J-term class called public interest architecture. Because she wants to be used as an agent of renewal in the field of architecture by training up the next generation of architects so that they have this sort of passion for making architectural services more broadly available to everyone who could benefit from them. Final slide, Perry Bigelow. Um, Perry Bigelow was the first Sadiq that I really sat down and interviewed in the course of uh, three years of research uh, for Kingdom Calling. He's a home builder uh, owner of Bigelow Homes uh, in suburban uh, Chicago. He's now retired and his son uh, runs Bigelow Homes. But the reason I traveled to Chicago to sit down with Perry Bigelow 
was because as I did research, I realized that here was a, here was a Christ follower who understood that his calling vocationally was to build houses and to build neighborhoods. Those are his goods that he produces. He produces houses and neighborhoods. And he was someone who had literally spent years trying to mine the scriptures for questions about what does God have to say to a guy like me who builds houses and neighborhoods? And what he discovered was that there's a lot in the scripture that sort of says this is the kind of neighborhood that God would build. He, he, he said, you know, there's all this great stuff in the Bible uh, about what a healthy neighborhood would look like. And uh, one of his favorite passages comes from Zechariah 8, where it talks about how God is going to renew the city of Jerusalem and how children will play safely in the streets and the old, old, old people will kind of hang out yakking with each other. And there's this vision of, of beautiful community. And so Perry has taken that vision very seriously. And he builds, I got to walk around one of the neighborhoods actually a neighborhood for which he earned Builder of the Year Award, which is the single greatest award that you can get if you're a real estate developer, home builder. And the streets are deliberately very narrow, and they got speed bumps in them because he wants kids to be able to play safely in the streets. Sidewalks are extra large, extra wide. Every house has a front porch on it so that people can kind of talk to each other. There's all sorts of green space. There's fountains. There's, there's uh, little gazebos and places to sit down because he wants people to be able to kind of intermingle. And probably most importantly, he has a philosophy called heterogeneous compact development. What that means is, um, in contrast to the way that uh, a good bit of suburban um, real estate development is done, in a conventional way, uh, a developer might look at a big parcel of land and, and I'm going to make the numbers up here because I'm not a real estate developer, so I don't really know. But let's just pretend that there's 500 acres uh, of land and the developer uh, gets it. Well, a more conventional model in the suburbs would be to say, okay, I've got this 500-acre plot of land. I'm going to put 200 houses on it. And they're all going to be fairly big houses, and they're all going to have fairly big yards. And because all the houses are fairly similar, um, the price points for the homes aren't very wide-ranging. And that means that you pretty much get the same class, economic class of people that moves in because you get everybody who can basically afford homes that are in this sort of price range. And typically, because the homes are big, you typically get um, families. So you, you get sort of upper middle class families um, who have children and children want yards to run around in and swing sets to play on and all of that sort of thing. Well, Perry said, what if we took 500 acres of land and instead of building the same size houses on big lots, what if we had some big houses on big lots? What if we had some ranch-style, one-level houses with little posted square lawns where older people would want to live, who, where the dad says, you know what, I'm done with that whole mowing the lawn thing. Like, I'm 70 years old, I ain't doing that no more, right? And young, yuppie-type people, I see a lot of yuppies out here, who would say, you know, I want to live kind of in a loft-type space, and I want to have to have my little creative business on the bottom. You know, so he created, you know, houses for, for that. He, he created large homes that are, that are not real fancy, so that they could be affordable for the teachers and the firemen and the police officers. And then there are also some large, very well-done, you know, granite countertops and the whole fancy, fancy, fancy thing um, for those that could afford those. And as a result... His neighborhoods 
um, are much more diverse. And he puts maybe 300 houses on 500 acres of land. And that means there's more individual property tax paying units in the same amount of land. Well, that makes the city government really happy because the more property tax paying units you have in a particular you know, place, the more money is coming in to municipal coffers. And the more money that comes into municipal coffers, the more you have to spend on firemen and police officers and teachers and schools and good roads. So Perry, although he's retired, technically, he's actually a pretty busy guy because he keeps getting asked to speak all over the country to all these city managers and mayors and different groups like that who are saying, wow, like, tell us more about this heterogeneous compact development model and how could we get more of our developers to be involved in this kind of work. So again, Perry Bigelow is a person who I believe is, is renewing. He's an agent of renewal within his own uh, field. Well, let me conclude. Um, I'm actually working on a new book now, which is exciting. Um, don't have a title yet, so don't ask me what the title of my new book is. I'm not sure yet. I've been working on that. I've got about 25 titles. But one part of my new book is going to look at um, a really fun part of Christian history. It, it's, I'm going to be looking at uh, the work of, of Christ followers in the early 19th century in the United Kingdom. Many of you probably are aware of the, the famous evangelical um, British uh, MP named William Wilberforce. Um, and for, Wilberforce was very well known for his work alongside a lot of his friends who were part of something called the Clapham community because they ended up achieving the end of the British slave trade. It was a huge reform that took place uh, in, in England at this time. But the more I started studying this period of history, I realized, you know, William Wilberforce was, was not the only one. There's a whole bunch of Christ followers, people who were lawyers, people who were in the government, people who are writers and artists, people who are business people and, and educators. And these people not only accomplished the end of the British slave trade, but they did many, many other really wonderful things. They founded innumerable aid societies to, to serve uh, various disadvantaged and vulnerable populations, whether those were um, widows or orphans, or prostitutes, people um, who are disabled, uh, have disabilities. They established innumerable uh, schools, known as ragged schools, for the poorest of poor children teaching literacy. Uh, they successfully fought the, the very powerful British East India Company, uh, which was um, using its influence in India to basically be uh, in opposition to missionary activity, Christian missionary activity uh, in India. They, uh, they launched new businesses, kind of like Pete Leonard, with the specific purpose of creating jobs for the jobless. They ran health centers. They did what we would today call uh, financial literacy classes. Um, they championed various reforms in Parliament to make the British government more accountable and more transparent. Uh, they were very generous uh, with their money. Wilberforce was known uh, as an extremely generous person. They gave away anywhere between a quarter and a third of his income each year. In short, these folks were the Sadakim. They lived lives as flourishing agents of the common good for the glory of King Jesus. Um, one of the really fabulous books on this period of time is called The Silent Revolution um, by a, a historian who I actually happen to know personally. Um, and he says this at the end of his book. 
that Christ followers, you know, in this period of time, um, brought about a new society that, quote, freed the slaves, taught the ignorant, brought spiritual life where there was darkness, and ameliorated the harsh conditions brought about by industrialization, internal migration, and rapid population growth. Theirs was a revolution that succeeded in making almost all things better. And I believe, my friends, that with the same spirit of generosity, with the same amount of intentionality and dedication and self-sacrifice um, enacted through the power of the Holy Spirit, we too can be agents of flourishing for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbors through our practice of vocational stewardship. Thank you very much.